Welcome to our sixth episode in this sub-mini-series on grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Holy Father, Holy Son of God, Holy Ghost, we ask you, triune yet one, to help us in our understanding of the faith and of these truths, and most importantly, of you yourself, so that we understand, so that we might love, so that we grow, so that we might be in more perfect communion with you now and always. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In today's episode, we will pick up with the importance of contrition right after we uh, say just a few words about the recipient and bo as well as the minister. So the minister in uh, the sacrament of penance is simply the, 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 the ordained priest, one who has holy orders that ordering or conforming of the soul to Christ in a way that allows him to administer various sacraments, and in particular, the, the sacrament of uh, penance. To administer the sacrament of penance validly, however, the minister needs jurisdiction as well. This used to be a much more regulated, or re excuse me, relegated thing, and regulated thing. However, at this point, uh, it's it's not near as, as regulated because the jurisdiction specifically with the Sacrament of penance is something that is very large, or let's say very loose, in that priests that are in good standing, priests that have their faculties from a bishop, then are able to give the sacrament of confession almost entirely throughout the world. There is a few different places. I think one is in one or two of the basilicas or something in Rome and something of this sort where that is reserved for those that have particular jurisdiction over that. But a priest that is in good standing and with faculties can be in an airport in a place in a different country than from where he's from and a different country from where he is a pastor and yet still validly give confession to a person that asks him in that uh, airport. And thank God, because it is nice to be able to see a priest and ask for confession whenever that is a possibility, rather than always trying to have to figure out, okay, am I in my jurisdiction before I can say yes to this person that wants to confess their sins, grow closer to God, and serve him better? All priests can forgive sins and above all, excuse me, and absolve all censures at the point of death. So although jurisdiction is a rather important thing, jurisdiction does not give them the power to absolve. That occurs at ordination, but jurisdiction allows them to use that in the valid and appropriate way according to the hierarchy and authority of the church. But in the place of death, any priest, even a laicized priest, that is a priest that has lost his faculties and is no longer a priest, there was a letter from his bishop sent to Rome saying this priest is going to be laicized um, and, and therefore is no longer able to offer mass and do these things, is still able to absolve sins at the time of death. Once a priest, always a priest. That doesn't mean once a priest, always an active priest or a priest with faculties or a priest with jurisdiction. The recipient is one who is baptized, that must be guilty of personal sin, and that must have contrition. So one must be baptized in order to receive the sacrament of penance. Even a Protestant that is on their way to becoming Catholic but has never been baptized 
is one who must receive the sacrament of baptism before they're able to make their first sacrament of confession. At the same time, though, the baptized person is not able to go to the sacrament of penance until they're able to and have committed personal sin. They must be guilty of personal sin. In other words, a person that is four years old that doesn't have the proper use of their reason that enables them to be able to choose right from wrong, sin from not sin, then should not be going in and confessing their sins to the priest because that child, if baptized, has no sin on their soul. Only once they're able to, to, to reach a certain level of use of their reason are they able then to commit a sin, and that is necessary to receive the sacrament of baptism. And to be sorry for their sins, meaning to be contrite. The rest of this entire episode will be spent on breaking down what that means. But very briefly, this includes, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, to have a firm purpose of amendment. In other words, to do better and not fall into those sins again. As well, to confess uh, to a, a priest and be ready to assume the satisfaction or the penance that has been imposed by that priest. So, you must be baptized, you must be guilty of a sin, and the recipient must be sorry for their sins to the extent that they confess their sins with contrition and, and desire for amendment of, uh, of, of life and the, hating that sin that has caused this separation between them and God, and to be ready to assume the satisfaction, to be willing to do whatever penance that priest does give. Okay, let us move then to contrition. This key right here we want to break open. And as you can see, we have several different kind of qualities of or um, ways to better understand necessary or essential parts of contrition. But first, let us define contrition. The Council of Trent defines it as, quote, sorrow of heart and detestation for sin committed with the resolve to sin no more. Sorrow of heart and detestation for sin committed with the resolve to sin no more. End quote. That is a good, very short definition to remember. Sorrow of heart and detestation of sin committed with the resolve to sin no more. Contrition is a very necessary part of the Christian life. Conversion is something that happens only with the help of contrition. We cannot turn towards God and away from sin. And I mean that in general. I don't mean that simply a person that is in mortal sin confessing. I mean that we should be continuously seeking conversion of heart. We should be continuously seeking to thirst after the living waters that Christ offers rather than the pleasures of this world. We should be consistently seeking to convert away from this life, this world, and what we can gain here and now, in other words, my own self-love and my own self-desire uh, of, of advancement for the sake of God in loving him entirely. And what this entails then is contrition. I must be sorrowful for those sins. I must recognize the destruction that they are. I must love God enough to recognize that this is what separates me from him, and I must hate that. Again, we don't mean to emphasize hate to the extent of like an emotional hate. We mean to recognize that this is that which will separate me from God, that which offends my God, and we should never appreciate, long for, love, or cherish that which offends God or that which is an obstacle between us and Him. So the hate that we mean is not this kind of sensation, this emotional or emotive type, type of hate towards a particular action. I hate gossip. 
We should, and that would be great if we actually do have that. But at the same time, just know it's very possible that you have a real tendency or affinity to, to, to gossip because you've committed that sin so often. But you have this, this, this real desire to love God more and to not ever have to confess that sin again because you never commit that sin again. And that is, I think, the sufficient type of hatred of sin that we're speaking about in this definition. Contrition is a word that comes from the Latin contere. It's a verb, and it means to grind or to pound or to pulverize. It grinds the heart of the sinner, in essence, into a dust in order to properly be disposed for the sake of God to be able to take and to restore and to reorder and to, to heal and, and, and build up. And so it's this kind of breaking down so that God can build back up. Contrition is this sorrow for sins. It's this pounding of the heart into dust because of what we have done and our desire to be entirely God's. And the more contrite that we are, the more God is able to mold and form with a real malleable, uh, formable type of clay in a sense of our heart. Obviously, this is all a metaphor, but hopefully it's one that is making somewhat uh, sense. True contrition is therefore internal, universal, supernatural, supreme, and with a firm uh, purpose. That is, again, with a firm uh, purpose or resolution for the sake of doing better, amendment of life. So what do these mean exactly? Internal. In other words, it is a true sorrow of the heart and the will. That it is not simply just a tear on the outside. It is not me just putting on sackcloth and ashes and looking as if I'm a miserable person. And, and looking as if I'm very sorrowful, but in reality, I'm not. We see over and over again in sacred scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where we hear, do not rend your garments, rend your hearts. Because it's the heart that is important. If the heart is in the right disposition, then God is able to transform and convert us in a continuous basis. But if we are just living kind of the outward life, the exterior life for other people to recognize, but the reality is that inside... I'm going to keep sinning. I really don't mind. Then that type of modality must be overcome. It is also universal. Sorrow for every mortal sin committed. That is universal in that it is all of those mortal sins. It is not just simply sorrow for one or two, but all of them. Contrition is also supreme. This means that there must be a hatred for sin as the greatest of all evils. Again, Understand within context what I mean by hatred, but understand as well that our enemy in this life, the only thing that can separate us from God is sin. And so there truly should be, as those of us who call ourselves Christians, who say that we follow Christ, who claim that we desire God and love God above all things and all persons, can we really actually mean any of those words if at the same time we really don't have a problem with sinning? Those are two incompatible realities. And therefore, if we are seeking God and truly sincere about our spiritual growth, then we will have a detestation for sin. It may not be this emotional detestation, but it will be a detestation nonetheless because we will recognize sin as the ultimate enemy, that which must be destroyed at all costs. Quote, that we love God with both intellect and will so as to prefer nothing else to him, end quote. That is the idea that we're moving towards, specifically in relation to this supreme quality uh, of contrition. 
must be accompanied by a firm purpose of amendment. So we have this, uh, this last part that I've mentioned over and over again about contrition. We must have a desire to do better rather than plans to commit those same sins again. This is why a person who is living in an irregular marriage, quote-unquote marriage, in other words, somebody married by the church and then is divorced and never receives an annulment and, 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 and begins dating and even perhaps even civilly marrying somebody, whether they do or not, but are living as if they are married in the eyes of the church, but in reality they are not, meaning if they are having relations as a married couple, but are not married in the eyes of the church, then this is very sinful. It is very problematic. It would render one incapable of receiving Holy Communion. And it is a position, it is a state that they are in that they need to get out of immediately. But this is why a person in that situation would not be able to receive Holy Communion and the Sacrament of Penance so long as they're planning on continuing to have relations with that person, that other person, because they have plans to commit sins again. They may be very sorry to a certain degree, but they are not sorry in the way in which is necessary, a way in which will move them to overcome the difficulties that, and the obstacles between them and God. In other words, they must be at the very least willing to say, we will no longer have relations until we get our marriage properly uh, blessed and, and sanctified by the, by the church and in the eyes of the church. Therefore, whether this means that it takes an annulment on both parties or just one party or whatever, that's what it gonna, is, it's going to take. And that is rather difficult. I don't mean to say that with any kind of sim without, without any kind of sympathy. Absolutely. We get all of our, all of us get ourselves into messes. And that's unfortunate because sin is something that just pulls us so far down and it binds us and, and, and kind of restricts us and enchains and slaves us. And it is problematic. But at the same time, there's always ways out. It's just, are we willing to do it or not? Are we contrite enough that we recognize that we are offending God to the extent necessary for us to then cooperate with his graces and begin to climb up that ladder built up by his graces in essence out of whatever kind of pit or hole or enslavement we found ourselves in? So again, in no way am I trying to say that these people that are in these situations uh, should just forget about the sacraments at all. In fact, I want to argue against that very much. A lot of people that are in these situations are very much failing to understand the gravity of the situation. And we want to help them to understand that. People in these situations are putting their soul and the soul of the person they supposedly love, the person they're living with, in absolute jeopardy of hell. To die in that situation is incredibly destructive because you are not in the strait of grace and neither is the person with whom you are sharing your life, but with whom you should not be sharing your life in that way until you're, you are married in the church. So a lot of these people, unfortunately, not recognizing the gravity of the situation, and this is only exacerbated because there's less clarity on truth coming from the church, and we must be very clear on this, that to have and continue to have a relationship with a person where you're having marital relations, uh, sex, etc., and, and living as if you are married, but in reality you are not, 
is gravely and intrinsically evil and must be rectified as soon as possible. And the reason why I say that is because you're putting yourself in jeopardy. Love is to will the good for the other. If you actually love the person with whom you are living, then you would love them enough to care about their souls more than you care about your own feelings with living with them or their own feelings about maybe feeling rejected because of the conversation you need to have with them. All of this is to say, in essence, Get yourself out of that situation. At least stop having relations long enough to where you can rectify the situation in the eyes of the church. I know when you have children with the person or, 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 or the, your own children perhaps have grown very accustomed to this as almost a kind of stepfather figure, etc. It makes all of these decisions and the ways out very much more difficult. I get that. Again, I am sympathetic to it. But I am here for your soul. I care about your soul too much to allow you to understand that to live in that situation is okay because it is never okay. A lot of the people in these situations just continue to live in these situations, not understanding the gravity of it. And so they think, well, I just can't receive you know, confession. I just can't go receive absolution in the sacrament of confession. And I just can't receive uh, the Eucharist. And so I'll just go for the rest of my life crossing my arms as I come up for Holy Communion. But... I'm enjoying my life with this person. I still help out at the church. God knows I don't want to hurt anybody. And so he'll have mercy on me. No, do not put yourself directly in contradiction to what both scriptural and traditional or ecclesial church traditions and truth have given us as what is right and wrong and what is necessary for salvation and what is not in just this kind of blind hope that God will see beyond all of these hideous sins that are offensive to him. All of us have hideous sins, but we must learn the gravity of them and get ourselves out of those messes as soon as possible. If we had any idea what even one mortal sin did to our soul, as well as does to so many other people because of, of committing that sin. It's a way in which we kind of give um, a, a sort of authority, a greater authority to, to the demonic. And as a result of that, we're causing not just ourselves problems and not just those that are around us immediately, but we're also causing many, many others problems as well. That is what we want to fight against and overcome. And we need to work towards fighting against that and overcoming that as soon as we possibly can by cooperating with the grace of God. Always, he loves you. If you are one of those that are in that situation, God loves you. Know that for certainty. But he loves you enough to require you to get back to doing what is right, to live in a way that is truly according to the gospel and rather than a contradiction to it and a scandal to other Catholics around and so come back. Don't just think, well, as long as I don't receive the Holy Eucharist and as long as I don't receive Holy uh, Confession, then I'm fine. I'll just continue on. No, a mortal sin separates you from eternal life. And therefore, every moment that you spend in that situation outside of the state of grace, you're spending in a way in which you are not able to merit any reward in heaven. You have no claim to heaven itself. You do not have God within you. You do not have eternal life within you. Those are the choices. Those are the consequences of, the, of those choices. And so please get, get yourself, get some help, get a, find a priest to help you to figure out the best ways to work towards moving out. If you are working towards moving out, 
Awesome. That's what is so important and so necessary. We are the, the messes that we get ourselves into are not something that we fix in a day. And so I, I understand that entirely. And there are ways to go about uh, kind of fixing this situation without immediately moving out of the same house of that person, even though that is most certainly optimal. Uh, that's not always possible because of rent payments and other things. We may be really strapped and incapable of moving out and finding a different place to stay. But those situations should be much more rare than common as well. Those situations um, hopefully still are working towards very directly and very quickly towards a true and right marriage in the church or taking the necessary steps to actually separate eventually. Um, love each other enough to want their salvation and to never be willing to be an obstacle between the salvation of one person that God loves entirely and God, between them and God. And any time that we are living in or having relations with girlfriend, boyfriend, or whatever, living in this kind of irregular status, uh, then we are being an obstacle, not only in our choices between us and God, but also between that other person and God. And very possibly, the children and God. Because those kinds of relationships outside of marriage are invitations for more evil, more demonic activity, more uh, temptations, etc. In addition to all of that, it is also, uh, all of that is going to affect the children. Plus, it is just essentially a terrible example for children. I know life is difficult and I know there are probably countless different reasons you have why you might need this other person. But... God comes first. God is most important. And so don't let any person, any priest, anybody tell you that living in a situation like this, it's just fine or follow your heart or these kinds of things. No, follow the gospel and, 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 and continue to do so until your heart is so bound to the gospel that when you say follow your heart, it actually means following the truth that Christ gives. It means following the gospel rather than following what our emotions tell us or where they lead us. Contrition is either imperfect or perfect. That is what we want to focus on now uh, and for the remainder of this episode. Quote, we can love God either as he is in himself for his own sake, on the account of his own goodness, or because he is good to us. If we love him for his own sake, we have what is called love of benevolence or friendship. But if we love him because he is good to us, we have the so-called Amor concupiscentiae, let's just say love of desire. That is, uh, in, in quote, that is a quote from Poland Proust once again. So imperfect contrition can spring from various motives. Therefore, the sorrow of mind and detestation from sin can arise from the wickedness of our sin and loss of eternal happiness and incurring eternal damnation and fear of hell, of punishment, and other things. And so I'm giving a list that imperfect contrition is based on a love that is not perfect and therefore it is, it is this love of God not entirely centered on a love of friendship and benevolence. It's also like, I don't want to go to hell and I want to go to heaven. I want those pleasures. God, what he, what he is offering me in there, that is invaluable and I want that. Right? The, the more perfect love is because of who God is in and of himself. I love God for his sake. That is true charity in, in, its, in its most perfect state. And that is the idea. That's the desire. However, because that's a process to get there, we have to eradicate so much and pay the temporal punishments and um, get, get rid of and be healed from all kinds of remnants of sin and all of this, then we're not all there. 
And so as a result of not being there, we have an imperfect love. And that is absolutely fine. It's not the goal. It's not where we want to, it's not where we want to stay. We don't want to be complacent and, and, and be comfortable in that. We always want to be moving towards a perfect love. But realize that when it comes to the sacrament of confession, perfect contrition, which comes out of this entire selfless love of God for his own sake because of who he is, rather than what he gives me, what he can do for me, or what he can prevent me from doing or going where he can prevent me from going, then this is, uh, that is perfect uh, contrition flows out of that perfect love. And imperfect contrition flows out of a mixture of all of these. It can be some of this kind of perfect love. In other words, I love God because of who he is. But I also uh, am, am sorry for my sins because I don't want to go to hell and, and these kinds of things. And so this imperfect contrition, that's what's required for the sacrament of confession. Also, imperfect contrition is also called attrition. And so you might hear me use those terms interchangeably, and I don't mean to confuse anybody. Imperfect contrition is also called attrition. True attrition must contain a resolution for amendment of life and detestation of sin and hope of forgiveness. That is what is promised uh, to each of us. Excuse me, that is what is included in contrition. And therefore, um, when I have already been over and over again throughout the, the various episodes explaining what contrition is, I am, when I break that down, meaning a detestation of sin and a sorrow for our sins and, our, and, a, and a, this amendment and this resolve to do better, I'm speaking of both imperfect and perfect contrition in essence. So true contrition, whether it's imperfect or not, must contain those things. However, there is a type of sorrow for our sins that is insufficient even for a valid confession. So if I go into the sacrament of confession and I have this kind of sorrow about which I'm, uh, I'm to explain, I am not properly disposed to receive because I do not have true contrition. Okay, It is a sorrow that is based and born entirely from my selfish desires. It is entirely born from my own wants. This is something that is insufficient. In other words, it has nothing to do with my love of God. It has nothing to do with uh, my relationship to him. It is entirely based on me wanting to avoid hell and me wanting to experience heaven, but not because God's there just because it sounds awesome and I'm going to have a lot of pleasures up there in, in, in perfection forever instead of these terrible hell, this terrible hell. So it's born out of self-love rather than love of God of any kind, imperfect or perfect love of God. That is absolutely insufficient. This type of sorrow is not really even a type of contrition in any way. It's rather just a sorrow, but it's one that is entirely self-oriented. A sorrow for sin arising from the fear of hell can be a good thing. In fact, many even explain that it can be a good thing, so long as it has some relationship to our love of God. Uh, because that fear of hell can certainly move us and, and help us to act more and to be more zealous in moving towards God. But we need him. We need to have a sorrow or a, 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 a love that is in relationship to him rather than a love that is entirely related to myself. Real attrition neither contains perfect love, nor does it contain a desire for reward merely for reward's sake, merely for my selfish sake. Rather, it's what kind of cuts between. So we have entirely selfish, we have attrition or imperfect contrition, and then we have perfect uh, contrition. And, and therefore, this is the array with imperfect contrition or also known as attrition. 
That is all that is necessary for a valid sacrament uh, to take place, for absolution to be given by the priest. Therefore, looking at perfect contrition. Perfect contrition arises only from perfect charity, and it is the love of God, as I said, for his own sake. It is related to a filial fear. Filial fear is the fear of God because of who he is as your father. You don't want to offend him because he's your father and you love him. That is different from the fear of a servant or a slave, and that is where I fear punishment, and therefore uh, I, I, I fear God because I don't want to be punished. That's very different. That's more self-centered. And even that is not near as bad as what's called a mercenary uh, fear. And that is, uh, again, an entirely selfish-oriented type of fear. So all of these times in Scripture where we hear about fear of God or fear of the Lord, it's speaking of this filial fear. It is a good thing, most certainly, and it is even one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. The Council of Trent makes clear that perfect contrition always, always, always affects justification. In other words, even if you have a mortal sin with perfect contrition, we're making an act of perfect contrition, you will be forgiven for that mortal sin. I've spoken about this in previous episodes, and I just want to hit that home again now that we're speaking about what it is in greater detail, that it is always going to affect justification. But to, to have perfect contrition is to have the implicit desire to get to confession. And so uh, that sacrament is still necessary, the penance, because even when you are forgiven by this grace of God that he gives you to help you to make an act of perfect contrition, even then you still have this, this implicit attraction and, and connection to the sacrament of confession and to the power of the keys as a result of this internal desire. This is only possible by way of God's grace and the penitent has a desire, uh, excuse me, this perfect contrition, it's only possible by way of God's grace. Through the desire for the sacrament, the penitent is still placing himself, as I said, and his sins under the power of the keys. Perfect contrition was the only and very necessary means by which in the Old Testament, before baptism and penance even existed, uh, people could attain justification. They had to have a perfect contrition. They had to cooperate with this grace of God that helped them to make this contrition, or to be contrite in a way that it was entirely devoid of any kind of imperfection. So it was perfect contrition that is, again, based entirely on our love for God, for his own sake, as who he is, rather than just simply what he can do for me and what I can get from it. John chapter 14, verse 21 says, quote, Whoever has my commandments and observes them is the one who loves me, and whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and reveal him myself to him. End quote. 1 John chapter 2, 5 says, quote, But whoever keeps his word, the love of God is truly perfected in him. This is the way we may know that we are in union with him. End quote. Quote from it again, 1 John, but chapter 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, because love is of God. Everyone who loves is begotten by God and knows God. Whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love. In this way, the love of God was revealed to us. God sent his only son into the world so that we might have life through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as expiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved the world... We also must love one another. No one has ever seen God. Yes, if we love one another, God remains in us and his love is brought to perfection in us. End quote. 
Loving our neighbor for God's sake has the same formal object as perfect charity. So in loving somebody else, I am not in some ways making my love of God inferior to that in any way, but rather when I love God in the proper order above all things and above all persons, then I'm actually able to love other people in the proper order and in a higher way than I otherwise could because I'm loving them with a supernatural love, divine charity, rather than just a natural love. St. John Chrysostom says, quote, As a fire which has taken possession of a forest cleans it out thoroughly, so the fire of love, whosoever it falls, who, wheresoever it falls, excuse me, takes away and blots out everything that could injure the divine seed and purges the earth for the reception of that seed. Where love is, there all evils are taken away. End quote. One more quote. This does not, of course, mean that the church dispenses anyone from duty of confessing his sins. For it is an article of faith that Christians can obtain remission from, of mortal sins only through the power of the keys. But this condition is fulfilled by the votum sacramenti, that is the desire of the sacrament, the desire to receive the sacrament, which is included in perfect contrition. End quote. Just again reiterating that important point because we never want to downplay the sacrament of confession. A lot of people, they think they can just make an act of perfect contrition on their own and then they'll be okay. They don't need to go to confession. No, get to confession and even making an act of perfect contrition, that includes that desire to get there. Some people will say, and this is very wrong, if you're in mortal sin and you want to go to Mass and you want to receive and you don't have time to get to confession, just make an act of perfect contrition and then go receive. No, that is absolutely wrong, and you must understand we should not be doing that. That is a fast way of making a sacrilegious communion, and it's terrible. It is possible to make an act of perfect contrition, in which case then you, of course, would be able to go, but how are we supposed to know? We don't know how perfected our love is, nor how perfected our contrition is, and therefore we don't know if we've made an act of perfect contrition. What canon law says is, in grave need. In other words, when there is a serious reason, then... And for you to receive Holy Communion, then you can make an act of perfect contrition because you cannot get to confession. In other words, do the best that you can to make an act of perfect contrition and get to Holy Communion and confide entirely on the mercy of God. But in what situation is that the case? For the vast majority, for lay people, they're never going to be in a situation where they must get to Holy Communion. They can just not receive that day and get to confession as soon as possible, perhaps even right after Mass. But it is so important that we protect holy body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord and never allow ourselves to receive that most precious sacrament into our sin-ridden souls. Only when grace is in us, that is when we should receive that sacrament. So please be cautious with that and please inform other people because this misunderstanding is one that is becoming very popular and it's very dangerous for souls. That is a good way to mislead somebody from God entirely. Perfect contrition is not required for sacramental absolution. Once again, only imperfect contrition, also known as attrition, is required for the sake of going and receiving absolution. And all of these are qualities, true and real qualities, that are beneficial for us in relation to um, having a, an absolution that is valid and given to us in such a beautiful way through the sacrament. Therefore, imperfect and perfect contrition are uh, including all of those qualities. Thank y'all again, and we will uh, be ending this entire sub-miniseries at our last episode that will soon uh, come up. 
And so please join us for that last episode as we wrap up this sub-mini-series on the Sacrament of Penance. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Virgin, help us to praise and adore your Son with everything that we are. Send the saints to pray for us as well, and all of the angels to help us in our need, so that all that we do, we turn from sin, and we seek and pursue our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.